welcome to Hazel and Katniss and Harry and Star, a young adult literature podcast, their film and television adaptations, and everything in between. I'm Joe, And I'm Brenna. And our show is created on the traditional lands of the Haudenosaunee, the Huron-Wendat, and the Anishinaabe, on lands connected to the Toronto Purchase Treaty 13 of 1805. And on the Tkumloops-Tay territory within the unceded traditional lands of Suwetmuk-Ulu. As settlers, we take seriously our responsibility to center and uplift Indigenous creatives and to work to build a more inclusive YA environment for all marginalized folks. And all folks who blow up. Yes, that is a certain population for today's episode. <laughs> I don't know about this book and movie, Joe. I really don't. <laughs> uh, yeah, this wasn't exactly what I expected. So as people who have listened for the last couple of weeks know, I had heard a lot about the film, which is one of the reasons we kind of moved it up the list. And I didn't mind either the book or the film, but I don't think they're slam dunks. No, I thought they were both fine. And it's interesting because the book has a shockingly low rating on all the crowdsourcing sites, Mm -hmm, and the film has mm -hmm. a shockingly high rating on all the crowdsourcing sites, and I think they're both fine. (laughs) Yeah, they're successful in different ways, and they kind of fall down in different ways. And I'm excited to have this conversation, if only because I think where they're succeeding and falling down are very interesting to me. I don't disagree with you at all. I think there's some really interesting stuff going on in the book and some really hair-pulling stuff going on in the book and almost vice versa with the film. Like the stuff that works in the book doesn't work in the film and vice versa. Yeah. 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 I do think that there were some savvy decisions made in the way Mm -hmm. that the film is adapted, but this ending did not work for me all that much. But we're not there. (laughs) (laughs) All right. All right. We'll talk about the book. It's aggressively familiar to the conversations we've been having. (laughs) It's true. So uh, I guess I'll jump in with the plot of the book. Sounds good. Okay, so Spontaneous is written by Aaron Starmer, and I think it came out in, oh gosh, now see, I thought I knew this, 2016. Came out in 2016. <laughs> and it's a sort of realist YA with some fantastical elements. That's how I would frame it, because it's not really yeah. a horror, or and I didn't no. find the book particularly tense either. I guess because of the framing, and we'll talk about the voice a bit today. Um, Mm -hmm. But basically, our protagonist, Mara Carlisle, is a senior at uh, her high school where uh, periodically people blow up. Mm -hmm. Well, not people, only high school seniors. Only high school seniors. And there doesn't seem to be anything connecting them together. At first, they think, well, it's all the stoners who are blowing up, so maybe there's something in the drug supply. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, they they wonder if it's like a hormonal thing. And They try to blame all the gay kids. (laughs) They try to blame all the gay kids for a while. And ultimately, there's no resolution. (laughs) Well, I feel like they come down on the fact that they were all implanted with government tracking devices. Yeah, it's weird because the person who forwards that theory also ends up discredited. So there's this FBI agent who's like helping them at the beginning, but by the end of the book, she's completely disgraced. Yeah. And so it's weird because her theory, there's only her theory and then there's Tess's theory that for whatever reason, these teenagers are basically like milk in that at a certain point, they go stale, they spoil, Mm -hmm. and when they spoil, they explode. Yes, and Tess is Mara's best friend and kind of lifelong companion throughout the book. 
Yeah, so the three characters who really matter are Mara, Tess, her best friend, and Dylan, Mara's love interest. And the book is actually doing some interesting things around, like, the importance of a sexual awakening in your development as a person, but the Mm -hmm. ultimate primacy of your friendships as the things that sustain you. Yes, I knew that you would gravitate to this. Like, as I was reading it, I thought, oh, Brenna's really going to like this part. Yeah, I do like that part a lot. And I also really liked... Once the teenagers all realize they are exploding, Mm -hmm. there's sort of a sense of debauchery that sort of settles in over the town. And it's almost like a bacchanal, right? Yeah. All the adults just give up trying to police them and say, well, I guess if these kids want to drink themselves or if they want to go into drug stupors or if they just want to act out, if you want to burn down things or drive cars into the river, yeah, I guess we're okay with it because you might blow up. So we can't really do much to you. And there's a little subsect of kids who just want to keep going to school, get their AP tests done and get to college because there's this other theory that if you can just make it through to senior year, mm-hmm. like make it through senior year to graduation, you won't blow up. But of course, an important character blows up at prom. So that's not true. Anyway, I don't know. It's an interesting <laughs> premise, right? Because the book sets us up for this. What would you do if the future was uncertain oh guess what everyone's future is uncertain mm-hmm. which is fine but <laughs> the flip side of it is that they they don't really do any like the book doesn't really do anything with that freedom that's particularly interesting and i i just kind of felt like between the lack of resolution and I don't know, the world doesn't feel really very thought through to me. And I was just kind of unsatisfied by it. I enjoyed it while I was reading it. And then when I put it down, I was kind of like, meh. Yeah. Yeah, I think part of what you're identifying is that this doesn't ever feel like it has a geography to me. Like there are moments where they find out that the middle schoolers are going back, but in a different location because no one wants to be around these seniors Even though when people blow up, they literally only blow up themselves. They don't damage furniture. They don't damage anybody else. So in the film, they don't even damage their own clothes. The book doesn't go that far. This is true. Yeah. Yeah. But this idea that the rest of the town can kind of get back to a sense of normalcy. And that's one of the interesting, if undeveloped elements of the book, which is like, how does the rest of the people who will not be affected by this Mm -hmm. go on about their lives? while this subset of people have to live just in constant fear Mm -hmm. that their lives could end at any minute. And I think it's a very telling idea about the human condition for teenagers, like everything is heightened drama, everything is life and death. And in this case, it literally is. Mm -hmm. And yet I agree with you, it doesn't feel like it leads to anything particularly, I don't want to say interesting, because it's always interesting. But it doesn't, it's not satisfying. Yeah, it could have gone further. And there are places where it looks like it wants to, but it pulls back. So like a classic example of that for me is at one point, the entire senior class is basically quarantined i texted joe and i was like really joe a quarantine scene right now i didn't know (laughs) (laughs) like i need this like a hole in the head joe (laughs) in hindsight it makes perfect sense but i didn't realize that it was gonna go this direction (laughs) so the government comes in and quarantines the kids and runs a whole bunch of tests on them which is Mm -hmm. when a tracking device is implanted so that they can't escape but the theory becomes that some device was also planted previously on a class trip to Washington. It's very mm-hmm. odd. 
Yeah, it's a little too government conspiracy for well, me. Well, that's the thing. But then again, it never does anything with it. So you no. you think that it's going to be something about like, I don't know, truth and who do you trust, which would be actually really timely, right? To have it be a story mm. about... Teenagers not trusting adults. Yeah, and teasing apart fact from fiction. And like that would be really timely. But ultimately, they just never answer whether that happened. And the FBI agent who is with them is disgraced but there's another fbi agent who sticks around who's not disgraced so it's not a condemnation of like Mm -mm. anything i don't know i just felt like starmer sets us up and doesn't follow through repeatedly through the text in a way that gives you interesting moments to talk about but nothing ultimately to hang your hat on like if you asked me what this book is about Mm -hmm. It's about friendship between two high school girls. Yeah. (laughs) This reminds me a lot of the kinds of ideas that I had when I fancied myself a writer back in high school. Mm. I would come up with these great high concept ideas. And it's like, this is genius. This is going to sell a million copies. This is going to get made into a movie or a franchise. And I never thought through what does the rest of the story look like? So as much as I didn't mind the book, a lot of the time I spent thinking, okay, so teenagers are blowing up. Dot, dot, dot. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It kind of feels like that's almost as far as he got. And then he had to fill in the remaining parts. And I do find that the book drags. It does drag. It does drag. And it's interesting because we'll talk about it when we get to the film, but a lot of stuff is cut. Like Mm -hmm. a lot. And when you're reading the book, I definitely felt like it was taking me a while to move through, but I didn't find any of the individual set pieces extraneous. But then when you sit down to watch the film with it all stripped away, you're like, oh yeah, there was a lot of stuff in that book. Yeah, there was a lot of extra. Yeah. Yeah. Which is funny though, because the book is a very fast read. It's such a fast read. I read this in probably two days. And folks know I'm a slow, slow reader. Yeah, I even texted you and I was like, I'm not sure I'm enjoying this, but I am moving through it very quickly. (laughs) I think it's because the use of first person Mm. perspective and the cheekiness Mm -hmm. of the narrator, we can say Mara, but it definitely feels like (sighs) it's Starmer. This is not a female character. No, I texted Joe that this is classic dude voice. And I'm gonna put something like that on the bingo card this week. We've Mm -hmm. been through so many of these books where the people can't get the voice right. The people can't get the voice right. And that is definitely the case here. Like, It takes you three chapters to convince yourself that this really is a book about a young woman. And Mm -hmm. the voice never sells you. It's just that the context, eventually you stop having to double check. Yes. But the voice is never persuasive. And sometimes it's really bad. There's a scene where she describes her own boobs that... Yeah, just no girl in the history of the world has ever talked about wanting 34 Ds. And the way she describes them like bouncing and it's just like, this is a dude. This is a dude. (laughs) And a young dude, I think. <laughs> and a young dude. So, you know, we've seen this slippage before between narrator and author. I think like we see it right. with John Green, the authorial insertion that happens there too. Yeah. And it's certainly not that men can never write women, but if you're you writing gotta do from better pers- than this. Well, if you're writing from a perspective that's not your own, it takes work. And it Mm-mm. I'm not convinced that Starmer spent any time trying to make Mara sound anything other than like himself. And, mm-hmm. you know, the flipness and the sarcasm is very inviting. It's funny. It makes me, yeah, you're right. It makes me move through the text quickly. Yeah. But. Mm-hmm. It's a hard but. <laughs> there's no reason for Mara to be female. 
No, not really. Except, I think, for the relationship between her and Dylan. I don't think you could have a boy protagonist and then still do what happens to Dylan as a female love interest. I guess you're probably I don't think right. it plays as well. But I don't think the payoff is worth having to wade through that narrative voice. It's rough. <laughs> when you texted me, I thought, mm, Brenna's probably just overreacting a little bit. She's so <laughs> sensitive because she's a I'm lady. I'm sensitive to it. <laughs> no, and you absolutely are. And it's one of the reasons why I like doing this with you is because I think if I was doing this with a man, I might be more inclined to have the same kinds of conversations. Mm -hmm. Whereas with you, you often bring things where I'm like, oh, that's a really interesting perspective. Hadn't thought of it that way. In this case, you sent it to me. Yes, I admit for a moment, I was like, hmm, Brenna. And then I started to read it because I hadn't really gotten into it. And it was like, oh, wow. Oh, this is so teen boy or early 20-something boy. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it really is. And sometimes that's kind of fun, right? Because there's moments where I'm like, oh, like the way he writes the friendship between the two girls is a little bit refreshing. Mm -hmm. Also, probably like not anything I've ever experienced, but but the way I was like, oh, that's kind of an interesting take on female friendship. I'll run with it. But ultimately, because it's a first person narrator and because we spend so much time inside Mara's head as she unravels, mm -hmm. that voice needed to be more persuasive for the Absolutely. book to work for me. Yeah, yeah. The moments where I found it easiest to forget was actually in the relationship that she has with Tess. Mm -hmm. So... I mean, we're going to spoil this. We always spoil this, but yeah. just in case, if you haven't read it, you want to know, go away now. But Dylan pops. Yes. With about one act left in this book, which yes. I was excited about because yes. I honestly didn't think it was going to happen. No. I was happy to get him out of the way. I'm, I, yeah. I liked aspects of their romance, but it got played out by the second act and I was ready for it to be done. And I was very annoyed thinking I was going to have to stick with it for mm. another third of the book. So yeah. when I didn't, I was very pleased. Yeah, and I think for me, this is the part of the book that works the best. Mm -hmm. It's the shift in recognition on Mara's behalf that her interest in Dylan was actually just a form of living on the edge. Like if I'm going to pop at any moment, there's this idea of being with someone who could also pop at any moment. Mm -hmm. Isn't that exciting? And then the excitement wears off. Mm-hmm. This book is heavily metaphorical about what it means to be a teenager. As I said, everything is life and death. And particularly in this case with burst crushes, like where you fall really hard and it feels like everything is super bright. And then that kind of wears off after a while and you realize, oh no, we're just regular human beings and mm -hmm. we have to put in work to make this relationship. And in this case, Dylan pops before that really comes to pass. Yes. And it takes Mara a while to work through the grief that it's like, I don't actually miss Dylan. Well, and that's what's so interesting about it as a dynamic, too, is that Dylan would have been the one who would have put in the work in their relationship. Like, if oh, that relationship 100%. was going Mara to be kind of sucks. Oh, she totally sucks. That's the <laughs> other thing. Like, this is one of those books where the unlikable narrator actually kind of works for me. Like, 100%. Yeah. I really like her attitude. It's one thing that the film I don't think does as well. Like, I don't think it translates mm. very well to the film. But it works really well for me in the book. But, like... Yeah, if she had popped, Dylan would have probably like built a monument to her, you Absolutely. know? Absolutely, <laughs> 100%. It would have been 20 feet tall. Yeah, exactly. And so it's interesting to have the perspective of the one who's left behind who isn't... Heartbroken? Yeah, and in a way it reminds me of The Fault in Our Stars and that idea bit. that 
when Gus dies, it's really the person who was propelling the relationship forward who dies. Mm-hmm. And that does make for a more interesting dynamic in a romance. Unexpected too, right? Unexpected like it's the too. kind of thing that we don't normally get, which yes. is why it feels so refreshing. And you know, this book is not a romance. I think that's actually a mistake that the film makes. Yes. But what's so nice is that when Dylan pops, so too does the bubble of romance over the narrative. And yes. and we have instead the centrality of Tess. And it's Tess's popping. That really unravels. Yes, because after all that's happened, after prom, she falls asleep in Tess's lap after they have a big confessional, like, return to each other after having been apart. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And Mara wakes up. And it's been raining all night, and she wakes up in a puddle of red grass, and she can't bring herself to believe that it's Tess. Yeah. And that is such the more impactful death in her life. Yeah. And it's the one that has sort of like lasting changes to who she is. It's not just like, well, I guess I'll be drunk forever now because everybody I know keeps blowing up. Instead, Mm -hmm. it's like, oh, I actually have to figure out who I am in the world if I don't have Tess to be there to define me, right? Yeah. And she actually has to process the grief, right? She can't just lose herself in the haze of drugs and alcohol. This is the death that is so sobering, quite literally sobering, that it sets her on a new life path. Yes, and I loved that. I thought that that was a brave and interesting choice on Starmer's part. Fantastic. It's the best part of the book for me. For sure, for sure. Because that idea that it doesn't have to be a romantic relationship to be life affirming and Mm -hmm. life-changing yeah that's powerful and not very well examined in young adult literature no and it feels a little facetious to say this but i also think it's just a really brave choice like this book takes everything away from mara Mm -hmm. all the people that she loves minus her parents who were never at risk yeah anybody that she loves pops kind of love her parents by the way great oh her parents are great they're so good (laughs) both in the book and the film i would say the parents are quite good yes agreed okay do you want to transition over to the film yeah i think i do i think there's stuff i want to say about the book still but in relation to the film so it'd be easier if we had that context okay hey mara this is the guy this is dylan ew you sent her no that would be gross he sent me pictures of richard's <laughs> That's worse. Can't keep me down any longer. Tell me something, just for me. First time I saw you, Jed tried wrapping his arm around you. <laughs> it was a good first impression. Caitlin was cute, airy, hardly a reason to pop like a zit. What happened? Caitlin exploded. What? Like a bomb? No, like a balloon. What? Will I get these back? Do you want these back? And the hell are they going to let us out of here? When they know it's not going to happen again. Then what's going to happen again? It happened again a lot. You know you keep a good girl down. Listen, everyone's scared. Duh. Duh. Kids are literally blowing up. I think they're doing tests on us. What's your name for the record, please? You can ask my lawyer. I have a moment for you where I knew I liked you. You like me? I'm just so glad I didn't explode all over you. So Spontaneous is a film from this year, 2020, and it is written by very prolific and very popular writer Brian Duffield. 
He's done the babysitter films on Netflix, which have a similar kind of meta cheeky horror humor to them, as well as the recent Love and Monsters, which is starring the Maze Runners Dylan O'Brien. And that got a really warm welcome from earlier this year as well. So this is his feature directorial debut. And the film stars quite a few people we've talked about before, such as Catherine Langford as Mara, Mm -hmm. Charlie Plummer as Dylan, we have Haley Law from Riverdale as Tess, and then adults filling out the cast include Canadian Luvia Peterson as Dr. Rolanda, who kind of splits the Agent Rossetti character in half. Yes. Agent Rossetti herself is played by Yvonne Orji from Insecure on HBO. Mm Mm-hmm. And I love the actress, and this part is thankless and should have just been completely cut out. They should have just made it all the Doctor character if that's what they're going to do. Absolutely. There's no reason for these two characters to both be here, because there's not enough for any one of them to do. Yeah. And then, as you mentioned, we have great parents, played by Piper Parabo and Rob Hubel. Rob Hubel looks extremely familiar to me, and I can't figure out why. Did you watch Transparent? No. Okay, he is a comedian. He's in a very popular gif where he throws glitter on himself. Oh, he's that guy! Yeah. Oh, okay. (laughs) Oh my gosh, this is what we've descended to. (laughs) (laughs) Referencing people through gifs. Well, you know, anyway. It works. It It does work. (laughs) Yeah. So this film is exceptionally popular, not just right now, but like with critics. It is 98% fresh on Rotten Tomatoes. I don't. I think it's because it caught people by surprise. There was no buzz for this film, didn't even know it was coming out, and all of a sudden it drops in the middle of the pandemic. Mm. I really think the content resonates with people who feel Mm. like they are living in a moment where their entire lives have been changed and uprooted, and it could kind of end unexpectedly Mm. and Mm. in a surprising fashion. Yeah, I guess so. Did you find it interesting? Well, maybe I'm the only person who thinks this, but Catherine Langford is completely styled like a young brie larson in this film it's a very odd decision the wig is distractingly obvious and also bad well because she's she's not colored like a blonde like her the rest of her her complexion and her eyes like nothing else screams blonde but there's something about certain camera angles and the way her hair is styled and her makeup like Mm -hmm. i kept getting really strong brie larson in united states of terra vibes oh interesting okay And yeah. I'm not sure. I'm not sure if that was an intentional choice. If they're trying to evoke the likability of Brie Larson here, hmm. because Mara is so much more likable in the film than in the move or in the film than in the book, to the detriment, I think, of the complexity of the film. Yeah, it's tricky, right? As much as I can understand why people really like this film and why it caught people off guard and was so well received. I do think that this film is taking a lot of very safe Hollywood choices. And one of them is having this cheeky, mean protagonist Mm -hmm. as opposed to legitimately mean character like Mara is in the book. Yes, totally. And sometimes it doesn't resonate quite correctly. Like there's a moment where they're watching the football game and she's ignoring like one of my favorite moments in the film is when the perspective shifts to Dylan and -hmm. Dylan's telling the story about his first day of school and why he gravitated towards Mara. Yes. And I wish there was more of that in the film. I think it would have been stronger for me if it had moved back and forth between their perspectives that way more often. Agreed. Yeah. The cinematography in that scene is really cool. And I found it really, I don't know, it just gave more depth to his character. 
Mm-hmm. And then it cuts back to them on the bench, and she's completely ignored his... Yeah, she hasn't listened to his story at all. <laughs> and it's like, if you've read the book, you're like, oh yeah, that's Mara. But if you haven't, I would imagine that note doesn't land quite right. Everywhere else she is sort of cheeky, sarcastic, not just mean, you know? Yeah, yeah. And she's not as self-involved either in the in the film. She gives herself entirely over to this romantic relationship in a way that yeah. doesn't happen in the book. No. And as you said, the problem with this film is that it does mistake the story for a romance. So mm-hmm. not only is the relationship between Mara and Dylan more important, the relationship between Mara and Tess is actually de-emphasized really dramatically. Yep. To the point where it almost doesn't make sense at the end. Like Tess disappears for so long that when she comes back and kind of helps get Mara back on track... It feels a little disingenuous. And, and also, there's a huge emotional beat with Dylan's mom. What the hell was that scene? What? <laughs> the film actually has too many characters, which yes. is hysterical because it, as you said, removes about 80% of the content from the book. Yes. So we really only get to know the people I listed. Like, there were other characters I could have talked about, but they're not important, so I didn't mention them. Yep. And yet still, we don't spend enough time with Tess. We don't spend any time with Agent Rossetti to the point where you're like, why is she even here? What is she doing? Yep. And it's bizarre to me that then the end of the film still tries to have these really heightened emotional beats, but it's with characters that the film hasn't put the work in for. No, no, it's this... Yeah, so there's the scene at the end of the film where she's, like, lying on Dylan's grave. Mm-hmm. And Dylan's mom inexplicably appears. Presumably she's just haunting the cemetery yeah. now that her son's dead? Question mark. And lies down next to her, and they have this, like, heart-to-heart as if they'd been close, but mm-hmm. we've never seen them interact before. No. And in the book, there's this whole thing about how <sighs> Mara has never tried to be part of Dylan's life in the book. Right. And it's yeah. uh, something that helps her to realize that she never intended to spend her whole life with him. Mm-hmm. She never wanted anything from him beyond the titillation of the physicality and these heightened experiences with him. And yeah. it's not that he was trying to keep her apart, although he has a very complicated family situation in the book, which is not replicated in the film. Mm-hmm. He's invited her over all these times. She always says no. And so then in the film, it's like they have this massive heart-to-heart close moment that makes no sense and hasn't been earned no i found it very confusing yeah it definitely plays well but not when you start to think about why this character mm-hmm. like why not have that be tess why not have that be tess i mean we know why right because it needs to be someone who had a relationship with dylan because this is all about dylan but at yeah. the same time you could still make this about the romance but reconfirm how important tess is in her life because The end of this film has this really grating, feel-good Hollywood vibe Mm -hmm. to it where Mara survives, where so many of, you know, I think it's like 31 other students did not. Mm -hmm. And it shows her taking the stupid ice cream truck and driving away to go and live her life. And there's an image of her and Tess as older women sitting on the beach with their feet in the sand, which is this recurring motif about the value of their friendship. Mm -hmm. But like at this point, Tess is a complete afterthought. And then it ends with this montage of future relationships that Mara will have and how some of these men, when she gets close enough to them on cold nights, she'll tell them about Dylan and what he meant to her. And it is 
awful. Yeah. It also can, while we're talking about the incoherence of the ending, can we just talk about the fact that the last thing that Tess says to her at prom is, I'm leaving here tonight. Mm -hmm. And then we find out that the town has been locked down because then Mara's like, we all, in the voiceover, she's like, we all graduated and eventually the town wasn't locked down anymore. Mm -hmm. Which, by the way, they had never actually explained in the film the lockdown. We only know that from the book. But so what did Tess do? I mean, presumably she tried to leave and was turned back. <laughs> like, the film can't even be bothered to care. No, the film can't be bothered to care about anything about Tess. No. And why you cast Haley Law and give her such a thankless role, I don't... It's especially grating because the chemistry that Catherine Langford and Haley Law have in the diner sequences yes. is really good. And if you've read the book, you know that this is the most important relationship that the two will have. So you think this is great. They're getting along super well. Good chemistry between the two actresses. Can't wait to see how it plays out. And then the film is like, oh, Haley Law, you're great. Bye. We don't have yep. anything for you to do. Yep very disappointing in that regard super disappointing and also because it's a very stereotypical best friend of color marginalized for Mm. the white boyfriend narrative which is Mm -hmm. just like are we not done with this yet seriously apparently not no (sighs) again you know i'm gonna go back to my usual soapbox and say this is what hollywood does it emphasizes the romance over friendship it gives you the feel-good ending you know, this inspirational bit that the movie ends on where she's driving and we've got jaunty music and there's a bit of a montage and you're like, yeah, okay. Mm-hmm. It all works, but it's so familiar and it feels like spoon feeding. Like mm-hmm. the fact that the film didn't dare take the more courageous decision from a book that honestly only had that one really good courageous (laughs) moment you're like come on you misunderstood where the power lied in the ending yes a hundred percent a hundred percent i think that the film is perfectly fine and i suspect i would have liked it a lot more had i not read the book first in this case a hundred percent i wish i had to watch the movie first I also think the film would have been a lot more tense. You were warning me about it being tense, and it it was, but it was much lessened by the fact that I had read the book first. So in my case, I think it's a good thing I read it first. Yeah, I do think that's the other reason why people are liking the film so much is because if you hadn't, if you didn't really know much about the film, and these people just start popping, and let's be honest, the popping looks good. Yeah, it does. It is gross and ooey-gooey. I mean, I think for me, even though I knew what was happening in that sequence where they finally go back to school after they've been quarantined by the government and they're just all in that one classroom and then they start to go off and it's chaos and the students are running through the halls and then Dylan goes, that sequence is chef's kiss. It's very, very, very well done. Very well done. In fact, I think all of the times when... All of the times when the film does literally anything other than being a romance, it's cinematographically (laughs) really interesting. So whether it's the perspective flipping or the chasing out of the school or any of the car scene when when the Lanford twins blow up. Yeah. All of those scenes are really well conceived and well thought out and then it just I don't know it it's disappointing to me that some really interesting fun exciting moments are strung together with a very boring romance (laughs) yeah the romance is not great narratively there are beats and character moments that get skipped that feel like the script is unfinished i think that this movie is hanging together as you said 
cinematography, editing. Mm, editing's so good. Yeah, a lot of the action sequences. And I think, honestly, like a lot of YA films, it's also being hung together by good performances from likable actors. Mm -hmm. Catherine Langford is eminently likable in almost everything that she does. Like, mm -hmm. she brings a charisma that fills in shallow characters quite yeah, well. very true. Charlie Plummer is super lovable. His hair is atrocious all the time, and why? yet he still makes it work. I don't understand why... <sighs> There's just a lot of very successful wealthy people walking around with bad hair, and I don't get it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, every character he plays. Like, I think we're going to look at Words on Bathroom Walls in the new year, thanks to some several requests we've had for it. And that's another one where his hair is just like... Yeah. He just always has this hair to the point where I'm like, can someone just shave it off? I want to see what he looks like with shorter hair. Yeah, I desperately want to see what he looks like with shorter hair. God, uh, every role, looking for Alaska, all of those times. Anyway, it's fine. Mm -hmm. Whatever. It's his mm -hmm. choice. It's his body. <laughs> um, can He's we talk wrong, briefly about the parents, Piper Parabo and Rob Hubel? I really like them. I like them better in the book. I think, as always, there's more space for the characters of the parents to be more complex in the book. But mm. I really liked them in the film, too. I thought they were well done. I like this tension that the parents live under like you're still the parent and you still want to parent your child but you also recognize that like what authority do you have over a kid who could blow up and this sort of living within a grief that hasn't come to fruition yet i'm fascinated mm -hmm. by all of it oh yeah yeah there's a scene where Mara has gotten very publicly drunk and thrown mm -hmm. a bottle of booze through Agent Rossetti's windshield, mm -hmm. and she gets into trouble. She comes home, and her parents try to get angry at her, but she's still drunk, and she <laughs> just ends up telling them, I'm going to die, and there's nothing that you can do about it. And there's this moment, like she's up on the landing, and she's looking down and yelling at them, and... Rob Hubble's face just kind of slowly caves in on itself mm -hmm. and Piper Barbo has to turn around to stop herself from just mm -hmm. crying. And it's really powerful, Very which well is done. super commendable considering you're right, these characters aren't a really big presence in the film. Yeah, no, I really like it. It's an interesting choice too. The dad is more central in the film where the mum is more central in the book. But in both mm -hmm. cases, they really do a good job of coping with an absolutely untenable situation right yeah. and actually remaining good parents through it i feel like we've read so many books where the parents in this scenario would disconnect it's mm -hmm. really nice to see an example where they try to continue parenting through a trauma yeah they're good parents yeah. but they're also allowing mara to have the space to make a lot of really bad decisions yeah because what are they gonna do like, yeah you know it's fascinating it, it, it is really is I'm glad it's a perspective that was included. It would be easy for this book to just be about the high school students and not look at the larger impacts. Yeah, I almost would have been interested to have had a kind of accompaniment mm. adult book mm -hmm. from the parents' perspective. The like, teachers. what is it like, right? And the teachers. The teacher yeah. who volunteers to teach the exploding kids and she just reads Bible verses at them. I gotta say, I'm super happy that the film gently covered the fact that the kids get drunk and high for a period of time mm. but that it doesn't do the bacchanal high mm -hmm. school with the sex beach and yeah. yeah the bible teacher like that got really old in the book it's a lot it is where the text drags and the reason yeah. the text drags through that section is because i don't think starman knows what he's doing with it it feels like i'm gonna try juggling this plate in the air maybe yeah. this one too <laughs> 
there's moments of it that I like. I actually love Spiros. I love the mm-hmm. Vietnam vet yeah. who's like talking to them about like, yeah, I know what PTSD is. Let's talk, kids. Yeah. Um, and there's there's aspects of the school that I really like. I like when they build the beach. I don't really like how long the beach stuff drags out. Mm-hmm. You know, there's moments that are really good. But ultimately, because Starmer doesn't know why he's including that stuff, it can only drag. Yeah. 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 I don't know that I have much more to say. Pretty sure I said everything. I wish there was more friendship in the film, and I wish there was less Bloat dude in the, in book. the book. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, do you have some YA bingo that you would like to add? Bingo! Not a good bingo. I would like to add three squares today, Joe. Oh, wow. Okay. In that case, I will only add one to balance this out. Are you sure? Yeah, yeah that's fine. My squares today are inauthentic voice. Because we see it a lot and it's worth having on the board. I want to add something. I'm calling it borrowed time, but this is not the first narrative we've read, which is pushed forward by a sense of like limitation on the protagonists. But I'm thinking of other books like Everything Everything could fit into that borrowed time narrative. Uh, Obviously, The Fault in Our Stars. So just this idea of like the situation is is framed and delimited by some external force. Okay. Yeah, I like that a lot, actually. Thanks. And my third square is something I'm calling Forever Young. <clears throat> okay. It's in honor of Haley Law, who is 27 years old, Joe. <laughs> Looking a day over what, 17? Right? And so I think we see this a lot, right? Adults playing youth. And I think the Forever Young square can be played when it's successful, as in the case of Haley Law, and when it's distracting, as in the case of some of the other texts we've looked at. Fair enough. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that's my squares. What you? What are you adding? Excellent. So I I struggled a little bit to get the proper phrasing, but I think I settled on Netflix connection. Oh. So are we talking about this constellation of actors? A little bit, because yeah. initially I was like, maybe it's a Riverdale connection. Then I was like, well, a lot of people now watch Riverdale on Netflix. In Canada, that's where it premieres. We don't have it on any broadcast television. Yeah, because the CW doesn't really exist in Canada. Yep. It's just an interesting thing that I feel like the spectrum of YA properties, everything now orbits around Netflix and to a lesser degree, things like Hulu. Mm -hmm. But really, if we're being honest, things come to Netflix, things premiere on Netflix, or they're drawing actors Mm -hmm. from a kind of Netflix stable. Mm -hmm. So it just feels like Netflix is dominating this YA game. Well, I think, I mean, Catherine Langford had a career in Australia, but it was because of 13 Reasons Why on Netflix that she became the YA darling of the US. Speaking mm-hmm. of which, she's getting close to a furry hour. She's 24. She's getting close to a forever young square. A little bit. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> There's a significant gap between her and Charlie Plummer. I think he's only 20. Uh, yeah, he is younger for sure. And I think that most of the time it's fine in the film. Most of the time it's not. But when when the wig is particularly bad, mm. <laughs> Catherine Langford. That's when you notice the difference. (laughs) Okay, so I have one final thing, and we can cut this if it's not pertinent. Okay. What is going on with Catherine Langford's body in this movie? Her boobs are enormous in this. Yeah. And I couldn't tell. It's like, is the actress pregnant in real life, perhaps? Or did they pad her up? Like, she's noticeably curvier. Yes. We're also watching this terrible, it's another YA property that I could make a stupid. It's so awful. I would never do that to us. It's a show <laughs> called Cursed on Netflix. Oh, okay. It's an adaptation of a King Arthur mythology. Oh. Only she's the lady in the lake. Oh. But she's like the Arthur character. Right. So it's like a prequel to that. But she's 
skinny. She's never been a big girl. No. And in this, she was noticeably full-bodied. And they shoot her like it. Like, they shoot her to exemplify it. Like, every time she walks through a doorway, she's shot at an angle so that her breasts look even larger. Mm. I noticed it, too, because I had just finished reading the boob scene in the book when I watched the uh, film. And I was So you were on boob watch. I was on boob watch. And I was like, are they trying to channel Aaron Starmer here? Like, what is happening? Because it's never brought to anything. It's mm-hmm. never commented upon in the film. So, no, I no. don't know what's going on with it. And it probably is offensive, but I don't think we should cut it. Okay. <laughs> well, listeners, I mean, we probably could have Googled and gotten some kind of answer, but in the off case, you know. Absolutely not, Joe. No, our listener mail prompt this week is not, do you know what's going on with Catherine Langford's boobs? We are not that show. Uh, are we not? Is that not the way to more listeners? <laughs> We're coming up on two years, Brenna. We got to change the game. <laughs> Boob watch. <laughs> That's the new name of the show. <laughs> oh, Joe. Uh, so if you do want to send us email about anything other than that, you okay. can find okay. us mm-hmm. for long form stuff at hkhspod at gmail.com. For quick chat, you can find us on the Twitters. We're at hashtag hkhspod. Joe, if they want to talk to you. No, mm, not doing it. <laughs> Joe, if they want to talk to you, how do they find you? I can be reached at a beast on my remote, and that's the letter B. And I'm at Brenna C. Gray. That's Gray with an A. And uh, next week, Joe. Mm-hmm. Well, okay, sorry. Tell me about the mini-sode, because you have a better vision for the mini-sode than I do currently. <laughs> so next week, our mini-sode is in celebration of our second anniversary, Brenna. So we have done this for two years. We're going into our third. Crazy. I know. So we talked about ways to make this a little special. Brenna was like, surely you've been gathering clips, outtakes, <laughs> and these kinds of things. And I was like, oh, Brenna. Absolutely not. This is where Brenna overestimates what I'm capable of. (laughs) So what we're going to do is we're going to do our usual thing where we talk a little bit about some of our favorite episodes, Mm -hmm. some of our favorite moments. But I thought that in addition to that, we would go back through the catalog of books and films that we've covered and make a kind of crash course YA syllabus. So of the things that we've talked about, which are the essential books and films that we would recommend and why? So this will be a good one for our teacher listeners, but for everyone, right? Like we often get emails saying, can we talk more about the history of YA or can we talk more about which texts are significant and why? So Mm -hmm. Joe and I are going to make cases for some of our favorites and why we think they are the must read books that we've covered on the show. Yes. And with that in mind, we should also give thanks to recent emails from Alex Haney of Seventh Row, as well as frequent write-in and listeners Leo, as well as Andrew, who continue to give us some really good deep cut recommendations. Mm -hmm. So folks, if we don't always acknowledge or read out emails on the show, please do know that we do read them and we are making notes of recommendations. We're trying to diversify some of our offerings a little bit. I recognize like I just added a Netflix square here (laughs) and we are trying to make efforts to do diverse and interesting and varied picks. So Mm -hmm. keep those emails coming because we are paying attention to them. Definitely. And the week after our next full length text, if you want to get into the holiday spirit, we're doing Dash and Lily's Book of Dares, which, Joe, by the way, I read for the first time in December of 2018 because okay. you had it on your holiday forecast list the first year we made the show. 
Oh, hey. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm looking forward to revisiting this. I remember quite enjoying this book, and I'm excited to see what the TV show looks like. They definitely filmed this in December of 2019 so that they could capture the authentic New York Christmas experience, and apparently it's going to make people very nostalgic. Yay! I am excited for that. You know, I didn't mention it, but this was another uh, shot in Vancouver week, hey, with Spontaneous? A hundred percent, yes. Yeah. Um, oh my god, like, New Jersey, it does not rain that much in New Jersey, surely. <laughs> no. Yeah, I was going to ask you if that school was the same one that we've seen. I couldn't find a breakdown, but I think so. The graveyard was certainly a graveyard we've seen before. Right. <laughs> so dour for YA. <laughs> Until next time, folks, then uh, go put Dash and Lily on your hold list, get ready to celebrate our anniversary with us, and mm -hmm. we will see you on the page. Yes, and also on the screen.